you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now in Fast, a red Monday as Wall Street. Uh, on Wall Street, as the S&P drops for the third straight day, banks, energy, and a number of retail names among the biggest losers. Is it time to say so long to the talk of a Santa Claus rally? Plus, a Salesforce brain drain for the second time in just a matter of days. A top CRM exec is stepping down. Last week, co-CEO Brett Taylor. Today, Slack founder Stuart Butterfield. Is there more to these changes than meets the eye? And later, Washington and Weed. The Senate working on a bipartisan bill to pave the way for marijuana businesses to bank, get loans, and more. The big market moves in the space coming up. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market side on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Julie Beal, Dan Nathan, and Jeff Mills. And we begin with a rough start to the week on Wall Street. Major markets seeing their worst losses in nearly a month, with the Nasdaq leading the way down nearly 2%. The S&P dropping for a third day in a row. The Dow shedding more than 480 points. Only one stock in that index, Boeing, able to pull off gains today. Meantime, Treasury yields were back on the rise. The spread between two and ten years hitting a new 40-year low. So is this an early warning sign that the recent rally's best days are behind us? Well, we had a pretty decent rally, Dan. If you mm. believe that that rally was pulled forward, then maybe, maybe that's the case. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. And when you think about some of the other risk assets away from the stock market, I mean, yields have peaked, crude has peaked, the dollar has peaked, right? A lot of inflationary readings have peaked here. And I think that's what the stock market over the last month, month and a half has rallied into. We've seen this before in 2022. We kind of know the playbook. And now, as we think about the Fed downshifting of those rate hikes, we had four consecutive 75 basis point hikes. It seems pretty clear it's going to be 50 and maybe at least a 25 in January. And then we have all this quantitative of tightening. So I guess the focus is we had that jobs number is a little better expected. We have some other data that's trickling. It's a little better than expected. What the Fed Chair Powell said last Wednesday that caused a 4% rally in stocks that we've nearly given back most of it is that they're going to stay the course. Whatever the algos thought they read, mm-hmm. you know, Wednesday at 2.15, it was saying the thing that we all knew that we were going to say. So to me, I, you know, to answer your question, yes, the rally has also pulled forward some excitement because things are likely to get a bit rockier in the economy over the next few months. And the stock market is likely to reflect that at some point. And it really won't bottom until, in my belief, estimates for 2023 S&P earnings have come down substantially. And that may not happen really until we get to the bulk of Q4 earnings in late January and February. It also might not happen if there's continued momentum in the economy. And that's sort of what spooked the markets today, right? The services number came in better than expected, Julie. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, the Fed might be hawkish again. We might, you know, have the Fed ramp up. And so, I mean, where do we stand yeah, here? It's, I mean, it's just a constant ongoing dance that we're going through with the Fed where we cannot figure out if bad news is good news, is good news bad news. You know, it's, it's about as easy to understand as any of my relationships, which is not very easy as it turns out. But I think, that the, I think Dan is absolutely right. I think what really is going to be driving the market longer term is just when are we going to get these earnings revisions? because if we look at numbers right now, they're just completely out of line with where sentiment is. And so until we get that, I don't think we can have a real proper bottom. Here. So I'm looking, we're right back to where we were 2 p.m. on Wednesday. 
So that Not whole mirage, yeah. I guess. I think you're right. You brought up at the top of the show the Santa Claus rally came really early right. this year. We had an enormous move from the bottom of October through early December. We were talking last week about it, like 14% or something like that. So this is not, it shouldn't be surprising at all. I still think this is just a tiny move down off of what was still a really huge, I'm not even fully sure why. But um, so I think the, the, the market isn't a monolith. We always talk about that. And some things like today was a terrible day for any of the high flying, you know, the triple Qs and uh, CRM, which we'll get to later, but uh, anything that had a really high multiple today was a bad day for that. I don't think it should have had the run-up that it did have in the last few weeks. So I look at things that are low PE, and I don't think they're crazy. I don't think they're, I, I think there's parts of the market that are actually viable here. Yeah, like what? Yeah. Did you do any today? I didn't do anything today, but I think something like, I mean, uh, Foot Locker's one I've liked for a mm -hmm. while. If I owned none, I would probably buy some right here. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Mills, you know, Dan brought up a good point in terms of the dollar, because that's, uh, you know, one reason why the markets have been able to levitate. The, the strength in the dollar abated. In fact, we've lost more than half of our gains for the year in just the past few weeks. And so, you know, in terms of another reason for the markets to rally, I don't know if the dollar is going to come back a lot more off of that, but that was certainly one overhang over stocks and one reason why we need to see estimates come down. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the dollar's been at a key technical level for some time. And I think you're probably in the ballpark of it being oversold. But it's really been currency differentials that have been the driver. And I think that that's sort of less supportive of the dollar right now. But then you also have safe haven flows. And I also think you have positioning. I think folks got very short euro. That has unwound some. So I think there's the potential for that trade to be put back on as we move into 2023. So I don't know. For me, the dollar almost seems like it becomes less of an issue. You know, I don't think it's going to plummet from here. But I also don't know that uh, the elements are in place for a, a massive rally here. What I do think, and I'll go back to what Dan said, is that you know, earnings estimates do need to come down. And even if they don't, you know, the risk reward is somewhat questionable here. So simple math, 2023 earnings at 223 a share. So that's projecting about 5% growth. In any type of recession scenario, that, that's too high. But let's assume that that's what we get. And let's put an 18 times multiple on that. Again, a multiple that is probably out of the question for the environment that I think we're going into. But let's be overly optimistic. That's what, 3% upside, maybe 5% upside from where we close today. So that's assuming we get that multiple. That's assuming that those earnings don't come down. Um, so again, I just think the risk reward is not great right here. And with the catalyst for the market continuing to be the pivot narrative, you know, I don't know that that's a catalyst for equities. I think maybe it's a better catalyst for the bond market than it's historically been for stocks. A pivot, a pivot meaning what? That once we reach peak that the Fed backs off? Yeah, I think when I hear pivot, I'm not talking about pause. I'm talking about an actual rate cut. So I think you could get a pause, and I think that they could stay uh, at that level for quite some time. They've been very clear about that. But you know, I think the market has been so trained on this drug of easy monetary policy and rate cuts that everybody assumes as soon as the Fed cuts rates, all of a sudden we're going to be off to the races again. My guess is, again, that's a better catalyst for bonds. I don't think it's necessarily a great environment for risk on because I think it's like in response to something that's uh, not not terribly attractive in in the overall economy. 
Yeah, I'll just mention that when you think about the 10-year yield rallying 10% or excuse me, 10 basis points today off of, let's say, a technical level of 3.5% down from what it was nearly 4, 3, 5 or something yeah. just a month ago. Pretty dramatic. And did, did that help the equity market over the last month? Yeah, probably a little bit. You know, I'm just saying in general, I think as far as the sentiment goes, but look at what got hit hard in the market today. Look at banks across the board. Look at like home builders, you know, some very rate sensitive names. And again, I think we were looking at banks and home builders for the first half of this year, they were kind of a leading indicator of what the broader market was in store for them. And a lot of the biggest names, you know, that the investors were just crowding into these large um, cap tech names. I mean, they were keeping the major indices afloat as the banks were going lower. And now when you think of the rally that a lot of these banks have had since Q3 earnings happened in middle of October, it feels too far too fast. If they were to lead to the downside, coupled with we're starting to hear all of these layoffs, right? There was the PepsiCo is, right. is firing hundreds of people today. Well, PepsiCo, they le- license seats from like Salesforce and from these other companies. I know we're going to talk about that later. And it's been an un, it's just been this orgy of, 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 of enterprise spending towards those sorts of models for years now. And I think that's what could shift. And that's one of the things that could also lead to the downside if we retest these lows. The thing I thought that was interesting about PepsiCo's layoffs that were announced this afternoon, too, is that PepsiCo is one of these companies that have been doing actually very well, right? Raising forecasts, uh, also being able to raise prices on average double-digit percentages every quarter. They Mm -hmm. have the pricing power. Consumers are paying it, and yet here they are laying people off. And so what does that say about some of the other companies that are not in as good of a position financially as the PepsiCo? They're going to have to lay people off more, more. right? I think even more so. That's the thing, you know, you said about is bad news, good news. You lay off enough people, then the Fed really does have the ability to slow things down. But I think we're still really, really early. And the other thing, you know, the I don't know as much about PepsiCo as some of the fang names, which have been so fat. They've just been growing, 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 and they can just hire everybody, you know, as, as much talent as they can possibly get. Now we're seeing that turn around. I think we're still actually in the early stages of that. And I think that will help them. I mean, we've seen it a little bit with Meta, which is well off the bottom um, as they begin to lay off. I think there's still thousands of people left. Yeah. All right. For more on the market sell-off, let's turn to longtime bear David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research. David is known for serving as Merrill Lynch's top North American economist from 2002 to 2009. David, it's always great to get your take on things. Um, You say that you're seeing signs of intensifying economic strain in the economy. Um, So how do you feel about the Fed, uh, what is expected of the Fed, and that's 50 basis points in December, if that economic strain is in fact intensifying already? Well, I don't think you can argue against what the Fed is uh, already signaling to the market. And I think they've already signaled that 50 basis points is coming our way in mid-December. The question is going to be, you know, what is the tone of the press statement? What is the body language and nuance uh, at the post-meeting press conference? So the real key is what happens next year. I mean, the next meeting is is right around the corner. It's, It's really immaterial. It's really about the forward guidance. Uh, as opposed to what they actually do uh, on uh, December 14th. But given what you're seeing right now, David, in terms of the, the you know households tapping into credit um, increasingly now, uh, what do you think is going to happen with the economy over the next few months? Are there going to be signs that the Fed can actually say, you know what, what we're doing is working? The economy is in fact slowing considerably. Well, I mean, the economy already is slowing. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding. Friday's uh, non-farm payroll number, what everybody seemed to miss was the 0.3% decline in the work week. 
Uh, aggregate hours worked down 0.2%. Uh, that hasn't happened since last January. Uh, so actually, you're seeing um, uh, all sorts of indicators showing the economy is weakening. So as a, nobody should be forecasting the economy is weakening. That, that's already happened pretty well all year long. Uh, the question is, do we start contracting? Uh, and a recession is an economic contraction. It's a haircut on GDP. And I think there's a very good chance that we're going to start to see evidence of that starting in the opening months of next year. So, um, look, the, the Fed is uh, the Fed already told us that they're prepared to have a recession just by their unemployment rate forecast, because they told us that they think the unemployment rate is going to 4.4 percent next year. Uh, we'll do the arithmetic. We bought them to three and a half percent. You've never failed to have a recession with the unemployment rate up nine tenths of a percent up any site below. So they're already telling us that, yes, they're raising rates into an every yield curve. Um, but they don't really care because it's for the greater good of killing inflation. Set ourselves up for the next uh, up cycle starting in 2024. And I think that's really what the message is. David, this is Julie. Um, I wanted to ask about the mix of employment that you're seeing. Karen talked about this in terms of layoffs happening at the tech companies. Um, Scott Galloway talks about a Patagonia recession. That is just so much hiring that's happened in the tech sector and, you know, throughout the corporate sector. But the frontline work seems to be really strong. What implications does that have for the mix of the economic growth and output that we'll have over the next year? Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, of course, the, the layoffs uh, in the tech sector and the mega caps have, have grabbed all of the headlines. Um, but late last week, we got the challenger uh, numbers on layoff announcements. And they were well beyond just the tech sector. They ran a wide gamut across every part of the cyclical sensitive segment of the economy. Uh, you know, whether it was retail or transports or manufacturing, it cut a wide swath. So I know that the temptation is always to talk about, well, look at this technology, technology, technology. No, 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 no. When you take a look at the challenger numbers, the actual survey, not just the media uh, headline grabbers, the layoff announcements are cutting a, a very wide swath right now. It's really broadly based. Hey, David, in your note this morning at Rosenberg Research, you said there is scant attention being uh, played to a 6.5% plunge in November U.S. auto sales. That's annualized at 14.1%, down from 15.1% in October. Um, extrapolate that a little bit. You just talked about manufacturing. We went from um, heavy demand and supply constraints in the auto space, and now something else is happening. Well, what was interesting about the auto sale numbers for November was that it served as a real uh, template for what's happening on demand because for so many months uh, we had auto sales, uh, you know, scaling multi-year lows, and, and of course the finger pointing was all on the supply bottleneck problems and the lack of supply. Uh, but on a year-to-year -year basis, uh, inventories uh, and shipments and production in the automotive sector. They're all up more than 10%. Uh, so we've seen a significant thaw in the automotive industry, and yet sales fell well below expected in November. Is telling you something about what's happening with consumer demand. I know that didn't show up in the October numbers. The October numbers uh, on personal spending were skewed by a lot of the uh, one-off uh, tax refunds that the state and local governments were giving back to the uh, proletariat. But that was really a one-off. Um, but the auto sale numbers, what is more discretionary uh, than auto sales? Uh, and they fell sharply, as you said, but this time around, not because of supply constraints, but because of demand destruction. David, thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you. Pleasure. David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research. Uh, Jeff Mills, your takeaway here. 
You know, I would have been interested to get David's take on this, and I've been wanting to mention this for, for a while, but just back to the employment picture very quickly. You know, there are two surveys. There's the establishment survey. There's the household survey. We all hear about the establishment survey. We've created close to 3 million jobs over the past eight months. The household survey shows zero jobs created, and that's because the establishment survey counts a person holding three separate jobs as three jobs, whereas the household survey says that's one. So you have a lot of people holding multiple jobs just, just to survive. So my fear, I think, along with David's, is that we may be tightening into a labor market that isn't as strong as it looks on the surface. So I generally agree with his with his takeaways. Yeah, and that sort of matches up with what we saw in today's market at action, at least, Karen, with banks, mm-hmm. retailers yeah. really taking it on the chin here. Well, I also, just one thing back what uh, David mm-hmm. had said was, uh, have you looked at Ally Financial lately? I mean, Ally, is it trades at like five times earnings and, you know, big yield. This is, you know, historically auto loan, right? right? And so, I mean, that's a little bit of a, of a worrying sign um, to see the expectation, I guess, of credit quality is one. Sure. Maybe that hits the banks a little, but that, I don't think that's what the main thing with the banks was today. <coughs> I'm not really sure what it was, to be honest. I don't know if it's fear of uh, stagflation we talked about on our 1230 call. I don't know. I was surprised just they've run up a lot, maybe just giving some back. Sure. Coming up, two standout buzzkills in today's sell-off. Salesforce and VF Corp catching our traders' eyes. More on what had these two names heading lower. Plus, Zygen Apple, the tech titan, reportedly planning a production shift out of China. So what would that move mean for suppliers? We'll detail the impact when Fast Money returns. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double buzzkill for you, starting with Salesforce. Shares dropping more than 7% to their lowest level since the start of the pandemic. The stock is down 16% already this month. The latest move coming on news that Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield is stepping down. That's less than 18 months after his company was bought by the cloud giant. Butterfield's departure announced just days after co-CEO Brett Taylor said he was leaving CRM. 
Is this a brain drain happening before our eyes, Dan? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, listen, I'm sure Mark Benioff was going to be fine. Um, okay, like Brett Taylor, I think, was thought to be the kind of heir apparent. Um, you know, he was also the chairman of Twitter before that went private. And when you think about Butterfield, I mean, he's a great entrepreneur. He built a big company. He sold it to Salesforce for nearly $28 billion. Think about that. That was one of the biggest tech M&A deals, uh, you know, in the last couple de- decades. So to lose a couple guys like that on your bench, I don't think is fantastic. Maybe it's time for a couple of gals. Oh, um, it Dan. may not be a problem for Mark Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Diversity. <laughs> by the way, he's always surrounded by women. In yes, his he household. is. Yes. I mean, this daughters, is, right. girl dad. Girl dad. But it's a problem for the stock. I mean, investors are really spooked by it, even if it, in theory, is should not be a problem for Mark Benioff. I, I think it's an indication of a couple things. One is, first of all, just how many businesses this company has acquired. It makes it very hard to understand what the true underlying profitability of it is. And I think the second thing is, is when you've made this many acquisitions and you have these kinds of integrations of these high quality tech businesses, it doesn't always work. They don't actually all integrate that well. And I agree, like Stuart was a really well-regarded tech investor. He didn't just sell his company, he took it public too. Um, and I think it's an indication that he stayed so little time of what the culture is like and the turmoil that's really happening. So I think it's, it's lacking direction. And when I look at it as an investor, I just think to myself, this thing should be so much more profitable than it is. And there's so much more integration to go when it comes to MuleSoft and Tableau still. So um, anyway, let's move on to VF Corp shares of the North Face and Supreme owner dropping more than 11% after cutting revenue and earnings guidance for the second time in less than two months. This is the worst day for the stock since March of 2020. VFC also announcing CEO and chairman Steve Randall is stepping down effective immediately. Um, Jeffy just bought some shares a few weeks ago. Now what? Yeah, so we have a we have a dividend strategy that we run. It, we bought a pretty small position about a month ago, so a little bit lower than where the stock is trading today. And I, I think we sized it to account for the risk reward that we saw. So the risk is the retail environment. We keep talking about that. I think their position in the market. Uh, this is probably kind of a harsh term, but sort of you know middling brands, right? You know, it's not Lulu, it's not Nike, and then it's not discount on the other side. It's not TJX or or even Dollar General. And we knew that the 2023 estimates were too high. That That was baked into our analysis. I do think that the CEO change is obviously going to impact sentiment in the near term. But overall here, nothing is broken. Obviously, the stock pays a massive dividend, which I think that they're committed to. So for a small position in this type of strategy, which focuses on income, we're comfortable holding the stock here. I mean, this is a a case of a company that has brands that doesn't control how the brands are sold. And we've seen this time and time again because they reference wholesale partners canceling orders, which is Mm -hmm. a problem and discounting. Right. Well, also, I mean, Jeff, I think is spot on with the middling brands. Um, But I I think also this inventory position that they're in Mm -hmm. is gigantic and very problematic. And they have the unfortunate situation of being compared at at least last week with uh, PVH, which had a very good quarter. They're not that, in that very different uh, businesses, so that didn't look great. Uh, PVH had a much lower inventory position, so that hurts their gross margin. They talk about hurting the gross margin, hurting margins coming down all of next year mm-hmm. as well. I don't know why they put that guidance out there, to be honest. Why? Why do it? You know, if you want to clear out inventory and you've got to do whatever it takes, I wouldn't put guidance out there. This is already a you know bummer of a of a uh, earnings release. Yeah. 
and you're looking for a new CEO. Why give them guidance they got to step into? Right. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a wholesale cleanup that really has to happen in that business. What's hard is their mix is so much more tilted towards shoes. That's a longer cycle time. And so I bet a lot of those shoes are still stuck on the port of Long Beach somewhere. What is concerning to me is that their strongest brand was the North Face. And to see the weakness in that business is really problematic for them long, to- long term. I don't know if it's just like the hippie hikers in California. I count myself among them didn't get, go out and shop, but it's a, it's a problem for them long-term. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Adios, Apple. The tech titan making plans for a production move out of China. So could the supply chain change help boost the stock or be an iPhone folly? The details next. Plus, oiled up and ready to go. OPEC Plus sticking with production cuts. So what's next for the energy space? A top oil analyst joins next to break it down. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple is planning to move some of its production out of China, according to a report over the weekend. The tech company eyeing India and Vietnam to take on more of its operations. This comes as Apple's strange supply chain combats holiday delays in China's COVID plans. What do you think of this, Karen? Good news for Apple. I guess so, but I feel like this has been happening in slow motion for a little while, probably two years, maybe a little bit faster because uh, (laughs) it needs to be a little bit faster and sort of two years have gone by. uh, They see the need for diverse manufacturing plants, right? I I think that's going to be sort of writ large, not just Apple. They are particularly vulnerable to a worsening in China-U.S. relations. I don't know. And then we saw the, you know, the COVID lockdown. So I don't know how they can not. But I feel like this is sort of priced in. But writ large, though, that that will be less efficient and inflationary in general to repatriate or move manufacturing around the world or back to the U.S. So, Dan, do you think it's bad for margins or do you think it's... Could be. I mean, think about it. What they have to do is they're not doing it. They're saying to Foxconn, you have to do this. You have to go right. set up factories in these places. But in the meantime, I mean, it does. Listen, you are right. They have to do this. Tim Cook, prior to him being CEO, spent the 10 years before that, okay, just setting up this supply chain, iPhone City, and doing all of the things that it takes to like basically hum the way that they're humming and command what they want from the supply chain. If you're going to fracture that after like 20 years, it's not going to be easy. I'm not telling you that, you know, go sell Apple. Or the, the story's done, but that is the beauty of this story. That's one of the reasons why they literally have 80% of the gross margin in the entire smartphone business. You know what I mean? Because they've been able to do this. So unwinding this is not great. Reshoring it, if you reshore something, these are good jobs for Americans. I mean, this is part of the deal. We've been talking about this for five years. Um, reshoring it, your $1,000 iPhone is probably going to cost you $1,400. Yeah, and are people willing to pay that? Probably not. Maybe not. Maybe not. But in terms of, I mean, this is definitely not an immediate fix for any of the problems that they have in in terms of Fox, Foxconn in China. 
you know, flipping the switch and getting production up and running, it's not going to be in time for this holiday season. They're going to still be impaired on that front. But have we factored that in, Julia, do you think, at this point with the stock? The stock, you know, it did fairly well today. Yeah. compared to the rest of the market. I, I think in the near term, it's a little bit of a concern, right? Because you have a softening consumer and these $1,000 phones are probably going to be going up in price. I like to think of this company not so much as a tech business, but as a logistics and supply chain business. It's just that is the level of complexity that they're at. They're not so much in the business of innovation. They're in the business of getting these parts into these phones. What I worry about is for holiday is that if they do not have the supply, that that sale doesn't just get delayed. It actually gets held over for quite a while. People will just continue to use their phones because the innovation just hasn't really been there from generation to generation of each phone. All right, let's stick with China here. Options traders are betting on a huge rally for one of the companies flagship companies. Mike Poe has the action. Mike. Yeah, we're taking a look at Alibaba. This is always one of the busiest single stock options. Today, we saw twice as many calls trading as puts. One of the trades that stuck out to me was a purchase of the December 30th. That's the month ending 95-105 call spread. A buyer paid 285 for 2,250 of those. That buyer is betting that the stock is going to rally somewhere between 8 and 16% by the end of the month. All right, Mike, thanks for that. Mike Coe, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, banks to get baked. We're rolling into cannabis stocks as marijuana banking leg- legislation comes into focus. We're hashing out the pot plan ahead. <laughs> and RBC's Halima Croft joins us next to break down the big OPEC Plus meeting this weekend and the new Russian oil caps, uh, how all this will impact energy stocks. That and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on markets today. Stocks selling off to start the week. The Dow dropping more than 480 points. The S&P falling 1.8 percent and the Nasdaq leading the losses, closing on nearly 2 percent lower. But it wasn't all red hours across the board. Some McAllen casino stocks trading higher on hopes of easing COVID restrictions in China. And Boeing eking out a gain on reports that United is close to an order for dozens of 787 Dream, Dreamliner shares at their highest level since April. And check out the after hours move in GitLab, the software stock soaring after posting a smaller than expected loss for the quarter, giving strong guidance for the current quarter and current year. It's up, wow, 21% right now. Let's move on to energy, the energy markets, that is. WTI crude falling further below the $80 level as macro worries on interest rates and a proposed cap on Russian exports offset a big OPEC plus oil supply cut. RBC Capital Markets Global Head of Commodity Strategy, Halima Croft, joins us now. Halima, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me on. You know, what's interesting is we've seen this big move lower in oil and we haven't gotten China coming back online and, and we're seeing those COVID restrictions ease before our very eyes. So I'm wondering how you think all this shakes out. I mean, I think today was clearly just a macro story for oil that it got caught up in. I mean, clearly there are concerns about a rate hiking, you know, for perpetuity. But the big story on the demand side to pay attention to is China. I mean, if we were to get significant lifting of COVID restrictions, that would be a tailwind for oil. I mean, Chinese demand has been so abysmal. And oil has actually held up given like the weakness in the key market for oil. So if we had any major rollback in COVID restrictions, that would be a catalyst to move higher, obviously, for the oil market. Halima, it's Karen. Do you know how much how much of China's oil is from Russia versus elsewhere? And so will that dynamic be a buffer if they come back online? I mean, this is the really important story when we think about the price caps. And today's big news was the launch of the EU's six package of sanctions, the embargo of seaborne oil into Europe. 
and the price cap to try to enable those barrels to move to Asia. And so the price cap is essentially saying at $60, Western service providers, insurers, shippers, you can move those barrels to markets like China, like India. But if you don't pay at the cap, good luck with getting any Western services. So you're going to have to rely on Russia's shadow fleet, Russian insurance. And so the question is going forward is, will big markets for Russian crude, India, China, continue to absorb as many barrels and actually take the barrels that are no longer going into Europe. So this is the key thing everyone is watching right now. Hey, Halima, Jeff Mills here. Just another question on the supply situation. Say it remains fairly robust. You know, barrels don't come off the market to the extent that maybe some people fear. Uh, obviously going into uh, an economic slowdown there, so that's an impact on the demand side. You know, do you see some sort of floor in the price of oil? Uh, and if so, maybe where would that be? I mean, this is an interesting thing to pay attention to. I'm in Washington right now. The Biden administration has signaled that they will start buying back for the SPR when WTI is consistently, you know, around $70. Also, you have to think about OPEC. OPEC decided to take a pass on further output action this weekend, sticking with their 2 million barrel a day production cut. But if we were to move materially lower because of demand concerns, again, driven by, you know, Fed rate hike concerns, you could potentially see OPEC come back into the market. But I would also caution against believing that we're necessarily done with Russian export losses. This is just day one of the sanctions. The Russians have said they're not going to sell to any customer that abides by the cap. And right now you're starting to see a backlog of ships around Turkey, as Turkish authorities are saying, they are checking for your insurance before they let you through these strategic waterways. So we do not know yet how the whole Russian supply picture is going to pan out, given we're just in day one of the most significant sanctions on Russian oil that's been imposed since the start of the war. At what day, Halima, are you going to say we know the impact now? I mean, right now we have a situation where Europe basically has till around mid-January to take the cargoes that were on the water from Russia. So if basically if your ship left on December 4, you can still sail into Europe. But the question is, one month out, what is the picture going to look like? And again, if I leave you with nothing, pay attention to what's happening with Turkey. You could have a situation where a number of shippers, insurance firms, trading houses are trying to parse this new sanctions legislation and are not quite sure if they can do business with Russia. And again, Russia has shown, at least when it comes to natural gas, they will cut you off if they do not like the policies you're pursuing. So again, I would pay close attention to the Russian threats. They may not be entirely bluster. All right. Halima, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to see you. Thank you. Halima Croft of RBC. Uh, Jeff Mills, how are you trading oil right now? So I think there's at least this question of, of lower supply, and I do think that there's some support in, say, the mid to low 70s. I was even looking at some of the futures contracts. If you go out three months or longer, they were not making new lows, even as the spot commodity was. So I thought that was interesting. And, and I think the bottom line for me is good charts, bad market. That's what I want to keep looking for. You have 96 percent of energy stocks still above their 200-day moving average, even with the volatility that we've seen lately. So the trend has not been broken. Exxon, Chevron holding key levels. So, you know, I know Dan feels differently, but I think this is a trade that you can stick with here, at least for the next couple of quarters.
Yeah, no, and I do feel differently, and I'll tell you why. I think that $70 mark that the Biden administration is talking about to refill that SBR, mm-hmm. I think it's going to serve like a magnet. I think it's going to go right back there. Yeah. And if you look at what the XLE, the large integrated, the OAH, which is the oil service names, they topped out. They topped out at key technical levels. They also are huge contributor to S&P earnings this year, okay, and they're expected to be much less next year and actually decline in the second half of the year. And I think investors are going to sniff that out probably this month. So I am short of the XLE. Rhea puts um, later this month, and also the USO, um, which is an ETF that tracks um, the price of oil. And I also, listen, and, and you could say, okay, well, yield's coming down and the dollar coming down. This time. I think a lot of these macro relationships are coming a bit unwind. And I think when you look at the oil stocks, they're disconnected, obviously, from the price of crude. I think they could come in at a time where oil continues to come in, but maybe there is a floor near the 52-week lows, which would be around 70. We've got a news alert on a major defense contract win for Textron. Shares are surging in the after-hour session of 7%. Morgan Brennan's got the details. Morgan. Hey, Melissa, that's right. So this is a big win from a high-profile, high-stakes competition for Textron. This is for the future long-range assault aircraft program for the U.S. Army. This is called FLARA for short. They military loves its acronyms. This is to replace the Army's Black Hawk helicopters. It's part of what's called the Future Vertical Lift Modernization Priority. It's an estimated $80 billion program. That's according to Jeffries, the total lifetime value of this program. I say that because there's some stipulations depending on the contracting over the coming years. This was very much a tight competition between Textron and Lockheed uh, teamed up with Boeing. It was Textron's Bell V280, which is what just won this contract award, uh, versus Sikorsky's Defiant X uh, aircraft here. So unsurprisingly, you're seeing Textron move higher in large part because, as analysts said, coming into this competition, this contract award. Textron really needed this win for its defense portfolio, given the fact that it has been seeing fading sales uh, on the defense side of the business. For Lockheed, this is going to raise some questions about where they're going to get future growth over the coming years. A very big contract uh, announcement today from the U.S. Army. Back over to you. Morgan, thank you. Morgan Brennan, Textron shares up 8% right now. Coming up, a pot plan on the Hill, the cannabis legislation in the works that could have a big impact on the space. Our own Tim Seymour will join us next to dig into the weeds on this one. We're back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks higher today on reports that marijuana legislation could soon be making its way through the Senate. A bipartisan group of lawmakers reportedly getting the green light by the Justice Department to allow cannabis companies access to banking institutions. The legislation, the result of pairing the Safe Banking and Hope Acts. Our own Tim Seymour joins us on the Fast Line. Tim, I feel like we've been through this before. It's getting close. It's getting close. Is this even closer at this point? It it is closer. And and again, this is not only bipartisan, but it's essentially bicameral. You've had both the House and the Senate, and the House has already voted for this, but the Senate really is close. And as we all know, with all legislation, lame duck is, is pretty chaotic. And, and I think, you know, today, uh, going in today off the weekend, especially when Republican senators met with the DOJ, who months ago had some questions about whether you could actually implement some of the necessarily expungement and criminal justice reform, That's a go. Uh, Axios over the weekend put out an article. That got the market very worked up. The market's already been worked up uh, as the expectation is that we are close to something. But we have heard this before. I've been very skeptical on cannabis legislation passing. Um, I think Schumer and and Booker are much more reasonable in the ask, but uh, a lot to jam in in a short amount of time. 
Yeah. Um, in terms of the trade, Tim, have the Sox pretty much made the move on the, on the hopes of this already? Which Sox do you think still could benefit? I mean, I, I understand that all of these Sox would benefit from more access to banking, but I'm sure some more than others. Well, the, 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 the U.S. multi-state operators are the ones that are in, in probably the most uh, light here because of the impact this could have for not only the potential to these guys uh, at some point be building upon lower cost of capital, possibly, again, this legislation isn't about exchange listings, but it, it may be about the incremental dynamic that might even allow a lot of the institutional investors that watch our show be able to finally invest because they could get custody. Um, I think if you've seen the move in the canvas markets over the last you know, week or 10 days, it's about a 20% move. Um, I, I don't think these stocks have priced in, but I do think investors are properly cautious because we've heard a lot of this news before. Cannabis charts have, have you know, bottomed and based for six months. They're, they're all through the 200-day now. The moves over the last week have been on higher volume, and I think multiples and expectations are largely reset. So, look, CureLeaf, uh, TrueLeaf, GTI, these are three of the top uh, positions in, in my cannabis ETF. And I do think that you know, the entire U.S. sector uh, will rally, although uh, the Canadian stocks have been rallying along with the U.S. stocks. All right, Tim, thanks for phoning in. Thank you. Tim Seymour, our resident cannabis king. Jeff Mills, with the passage of the, of the Safe Banking Act, would that change anything for you in terms of investing in the space? I mean, it certainly will help, right? Because not all of these companies currently have access to capital. I think probably less companies go out of business. And, and obviously, the ones that survive, I think, end up being in better shape from a fundamental standpoint. And that, that's critically important. But I think for this market right now, I think companies that can demonstrate either a path to, path to profitability or a path to free cash flow, you know, that's the critical moment where some of these companies get off the mat and, to Tim's point, stop bottoming and, and actually move higher. I think that's the key right now. All right. After the break, from retail traders to the pros, options activity since the start of the pandemic is booming. We will dive into the new trends for these traders next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Option volumes have doubled over the last three years. And to make sure that the systems can handle this massive increase in orders, the Nasdaq is teaming up with Amazon to put trading in the cloud. Here to explain why this will improve trading and also what the trading trends are in the options market is Tal Cohen. He's Nasdaq Executive Vice President, Head of North American Markets, our neighbor here at the Nasdaq. Tal, welcome to set. Thank <laughs> nice you for to having see you me. Here. Um, we were just talking offline in terms of the, the massive boom. We all know that there was a boom in, in retail trading in particular during the pandemic. It's still elevated, though. That's surprising to me. It is. And, and what we see in the market is the, the education, the awareness efforts that retail brokers and folks like Nasdaq have put in to the options market over the last three years has paid dividends. So you're seeing this broad utility in these use cases that options serve. Retail is starting to take advantage of that, whether it's hedging, yield or leverage beyond just I want to have a unidirectional position on a stock. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think that's really fueled what you're seeing in the market. And while we're off our highs, we still see options and retail volumes elevated. So in terms of teaming up with, with Amazon, trading in the cloud, what does this mean? If you're at home making a trade, what does that mean to that person? Well, hopefully nothing. And it means it only gets better. And uh, today marks the end of one journey for us. So we've moved our first market into the cloud. We just finished that migration today. And it was really two migrations in one because it's on our new global derivatives platform. And we moved it onto AWS Outpost. 
And as a result of that, we've actually seen an increase in performance. So latencies come down. And in the world that we live in, when we measure microseconds and nanoseconds. So it's faster to execute a trade. Faster, allows you to manage risk mm-hmm. better. And we, we use the terminologies more deterministic. And that is, uh, I think that's a real positive. And client experience has been really good. So the uptake, our market share has been strong. Performance has been good. And what this means now going forward is we're going to continue that journey with our other option markets and other markets because we have a great proof point for the industry and retail investors. So how does this um, help you in terms of the competition versus other exchanges? Yeah, so we, we've always wanted to establish ourselves as a thought leader in adopting and integrating advanced technologies like the cloud. And the reason for that is it allows us to develop closer and uh, more meaningful relationships with our customers where we can share our expertise and our experience with them. And it also positions us to solve more of their problems, which unlocks cross-sell and upsell opportunities with our customers. So more revenue opportunity. I mean, just speaking from the NASDAQ perspective, NDAQ perspective, not just the, the retail trading you know, perspective. Yeah, I think it creates a win-win. Mm-hmm. So we, we can manage our costs better. We can manage our relationships better. We can be more responsive to our clients, which is the win for them. And we can think about, for example, scaling up and scaling down capacity. Now, if you think about the pandemic and the unpredictable nature of our markets back in 2020, where we had real-time needs in terms of capacity, our ability now to meet those capacity needs is far greater, and we can do it far more efficiently. You met the capacity during the pandemic, though, when you saw the options boom. And so when you say meet the capacity now with the help of the cloud, that means you could have processed even more trades, you could have processed them faster, you could have processed them more efficiently. Uh, All of the above. And so it really depends on the market conditions. Mm -hmm. So when you have markets, just give you an example. Today, just today, we process 4.2 billion messages on our new platform that's in the cloud, 4.2 billion. And that's not even a a highly volatile day or a really active day. So when you think about that on a highly volatile day, being able to get that information out to investors so Mm -hmm. they can take that price in, access the markets very efficiently, really important to price discovery and what NASDAQ stands for. All right, Tal, thanks for coming by. Stop by again. You're on the 27th floor, you're not too far. Tal Cohen. Come and visit anytime. (laughs) NASDAQ. Um, Dan, you trade options. I do do trade (laughs) options, and and a lot of them go through the NASDAQ exchange. And I think these sorts of deals, we're going to start seeing a bit more of them. And like Tal just said, they're kind of being a first mover. We had Terry Duffy on, the CEO of of, uh, CME Group, last year. They did a 10-year deal with Google Cloud. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And so, again, if you're trying to increase efficiencies and all these sorts of things, streamlining operations, you know, CME has 24-hour trading and stuff like that. So these guys, 4.5 billion messages. You know what I mean? It needs to have a certain sense of resiliency. So good for them. Up next, Final Trades. Do not miss a special Squawk Box live from Business Roundtable. That is tomorrow. Huge slate of interviews, including the CEOs of GM, Walmart, and J.P. Morgan. That's at 6 a.m. Eastern Time right here on CNBC. Time for the final trade. Around the horn we go. Jeff Mills. Some nice outperformance from banks from about April through October. Underperformed over 10% since. Failed pretty spectacularly at resistance today. I think that continues going into next year. Julie Beal. I like Teledyne. I think this is a business that has a balance of good defense exposure, but also the commercial business is doing well. So I think it's interesting. Karen. Wait, did you say the CEO of one of the banks? Anyway, along the banking (laughs) lines, I want to buy back some out-of-the-money Bank America calls that I sold a couple weeks ago. Dan. Yeah, seller XLE. All right, Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.